Welcome to your mandatory wellness session. I'm your host, Anoop. And I'm your other host, Samir. Samir, how is it going? To which it do you refer? I mean, I, was, I felt, I felt you like know, a lot of it. Yeah. We, you know. You know. <laughs> do I? All right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's all right. <laughs> my, you know, I, at some point we probably should publish like a bar graph with my responses to this. I feel like it's got to be okay, fine, and all right are like my. Yeah, you know, such is life. <laughs> such such is, so is it, if life is ever not right. okay, fine, or all right, I assuredly will not tell you because right. those well, are my only three yeah. responses, and, and certainly not on a podcast. That, that would be not on a podcast. No. Yeah. So let's see. How how are how is it how is it going? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty fine. I was on pediatrics for a while, pediatric urology. I'm now back on a research block. I'm taking the step three. Super jazzed about that. Well, I'm sure you know a lot of clinical medicines. So I do. I, I, bet I that'll do. Be super easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 really excited to relearn how to interpret uh, fetal heart tracings. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's amazingly relevant to urology. <laughs> Comes up all the time does all i know is veal chop my mind is saying veal chop i can't remember exactly what that means but i know veal chop i think it's just you you are going to get some like veal parm after the exam oh maybe okay yeah actually that i would be pretty down for that yes i i took a i took step three during my intern year with medicine while i was doing medicine so luckily it wasn't too bad but uh, definitely the pediatrics and ob guide portions of the exam were difficult. Actually, oddly enough, those two would probably be easier now because I actually engage with those specialties as a radiologist. Interesting. And the surgery parts as well. Sure. It, the only part that would have been harder is the medicine part, which is, you know, 70% of the exam. Right. Yeah. I, um, you know, because I, I was thinking back, you know, back in back in med school, I, um, I overall enjoyed my medicine rotation. There are parts of it, uh, the rounding that I did not like. But the actual, like, the intellectual part and, like, thinking through stuff and sort of, you know, making plans, etc., I, I, I overall enjoyed. And uh, I feel like I was reasonable at it. Like, I, I definitely, like, I, I did well on the medicine shelf. I like new things. And uh, it is crazy how little of, like, medicine I know. I was, like, thinking through. I was like, what do you do if somebody comes in with, like, I don't know, pneumonia? Like, what are the steps? And I was like, well, antibiotics for one. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, based on just my sample size, I guess it would be order a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis for some reason. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> the next most important step. Yeah. yeah. I, I was like, what else do you do? I was like, oh my God, this is a problem. So anyway, point is, um, I'm very good at medicine and uh, reassuring for, for me and for the American public at large. Yes. Yes. I know enough medicine because I still do some critical care rotations for right. IR. So I get that. I, my medicine skills are most tested by just like friends and family who are always asking me for shit where I'm like, I don't know, is there an imaging finding? Like, it's not my problem. <laughs> Every time a friend messages me to ask a question, I'm like, I don't know, sounds like you should get an ultrasound or a CT. And they're like, okay, well, that's not helpful because I'm asking you about like a rash. I literally rashes. It's like a blind spot. Oh, no. <laughs> like, I mean, what that's the fuck is a rash? I, I chose rash as a good example of something I know literally nothing about. I, I yeah. to, to be clear, I just complete uh, wild guess. Yeah, I got two calls from one of my dermatologist colleagues uh, while I was on nuclear medicine and they were asking about like PET scans and I'm like, whoa, a call from dermatology. What a novel concept. <laughs> Yeah, I never hear from dermatology. I I think I I'm not sure I've told, told the story before, but I we one time on urology we had to consult um, dermatology because this person developed this weird rash, and we're like, I don't know what's going on here, and we we're like, this is probably nothing, but like, eh, we right. don't know what it is. Or, How did it feel to know that someone was going to follow up as an outpatient on you? <laughs> <laughs> the way that you do to everybody right. else. Well, the thing is, they they they, they saw this actually as an as an inpatient consult, and oh and wow, I, yeah, yeah, it, it was it was like the most basic of rashes. Uh, to give you an idea of how little I know about rashes, I don't remember what it was, but it was very basic. <laughs> and I, I was like near the patient's room, and I and I overheard the resident basically talking to the attending about this because who had come to staff the consult, and I, I feel like there was very much an undercurrent of like these people are fucking idiots, but they were actually very nice about it, like. They didn't know I was listening, and they were actually very polite. And then I was like, oh, hey, by the way, I'm urology. I'm the person who called. They're like, oh, great. And they, like, they gave me a full description of everything going on. And they were like, yeah, put this, like, I don't know, Triamcinolone or something. I, I mean, I don't know. They, they, they prescribed something that was, like, 
very straightforward. And how little I know about dermatology is I've purged all the information about dermatology from this story that is about dermatology. <laughs> correct. I, I I feel like it was Triumphson alone. I, I I don't know for sure, but that just seems correct to me. So I'm going to say that's what it was. Anyway, point being, they're actually very nice about it, even though I I mean I guarantee it was like the stupidest consult in the world. So. Yes. I think perhaps something they're used to. My relationship of dermatology has, has very much changed over the last few years because I did prelim year with a bunch of dermatologists. Hmm. And so I'm friends with them on Instagram. So now I am just keyed into dermatology Instagram, which is huge. I'm always getting wrecks on various like skin creams and various new therapies and uh one of them is always dancing it's very weird interesting that is <laughs> yeah there, there's a lot of crossover between dermatology instagram and dermatology tiktok which is also apparently a right thing. yeah you know it's uh, one thing i will say and i know this is something that, that, that irritates a lot of people within dermatology there is this sense because it for sort of fits into this general world of like cosmetics and you know aesthetic stuff that people who are not dermatologists are constantly trying to like get in on that like random like mid-levels who will get like a certificate or even like other physicians like family medicine doctors who i mean they can certainly treat basic rashes but they sort of like shift their whole practice to being like a dermatology practice despite not having that actual board certification which seems pretty bullshit and uh i know that's something that people are salty about so i figure i'll throw it out there right right it's the nature of cosmetics right because one it, you can get people to pay out of pocket for it which is great. And two, it is harder to sue for a thing that is like not like threatening. Sure. And right. Yeah. So cosmetics is like the golden goose for a lot of different specialties. Like it's the same reason why so many people treat varicose veins. Because you're like, you're probably not going to kill anybody by treating varicose veins. I will throw out one thing though for dermatology, which is that if you're kind of sort of putting yourself out there as, yeah, we're a dermatology practice, you need to be able to recognize with a high level of confidence and sensitivity things that actually could kill you oh no no i'm saying that it makes sense that people want to do it i'm not saying that i would like if i needed a dermatology rex you know i'd go to an actual yeah without a question i mean like yeah i mean most times it's nbd but occasionally it's scc and you don't want that squamous cell carcinoma Uh, okay (laughs) Wow. I'm going to edit that pause down a lot so that I don't seem like a big of an idiot. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Again, Samir, it's, if it's skin deep, I don't know. In your defense, I led with NBD, which is clearly like an internet abbreviation. And then I went immediately, I mean, that was the joke, of course, but immediately to a medical abbreviation. And obviously, no, yeah. and, the, brain and wasn't the joke the right is getting better. The joke was good, Samir. I don't want you to feel bad about the joke. I feel bad about myself. <laughs> for not getting it sure that that's on me very reasonable very reasonable yeah but yeah so that's um i guess this is a sort of a roundabout i don't know how i ended up on dermatology encroachment but um that's what's going <laughs> on with me to talk about it every week on the podcast. <laughs> it's part of the list it's part of the list and we've been, list, we've been very bad on it actually it's like the one thing we keep missing and we worked it in finally we finally got there we finally got there we could we could get that sponsor money <laughs> right fine. we're yeah. sponsored by the field of dermatology <laughs> yeah because as we mentioned, dermatology, very unknown field. Needs more patience. Yeah, very little known. Yeah. Uh, what's going on oh, with you? what's been going on with me? Uh, eh. Yeah, well, rather, so I guess what? I was vacation a noop two episodes ago. Now I'm a noop after dark. I'm on nights. Uh, but nothing too exciting. <laughs> my nights block, I, I get my days for the most part. It's like more of an evenings block than a nights block. So uh, I've been enjoying the Southern California weather. Being outside, hiking, exercising, trying to trying to stay alive, <laughs> be happy and healthy. Otherwise, nothing too exciting. I was going to ask you, is there anything good or new going on in life? Like a, a one good thing, since I don't think we've done that in a while. I will 100% answer this, um, but I wanted to ask, would you consider yourself crepuscular, Anoop? It's a, one of my favorite words that's very underused. It means like in the twilight, because you're evening. Uh, would I consider myself corpuscular? Yeah, Chris. let's take a minute and really <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a it's, it's, it's a lovely word Once again i i don't i mean i i guess i know why it's not used because i mean it's an, an unnecessarily like involved word for like twilight time but i think it's like it's sort of like an animal who's like around during twilight is like crepuscular as opposed to like nocturnal or diurnal but uh yeah, yeah. Be cre- see I, mean, I just thought you were calling me fat no 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 <laughs> Cre- crepuscular crepuscular 
Crepuscular. Not, not, wait, what's the word you think of? Corpulent? Yeah, I was going for like corpulent and I was like, am I corpuscular? <laughs> no, no, no. Crepuscular. Crepuscular. No. Or corpuscular is how you describe a rash. <laughs> it's sort of a diffuse, uh, minimally raised corpuscular rash. <laughs> so that's actually pretty good, honestly. I mean, if, if Durham included in their note that a rash was either corpuscular, crepuscular, like any of these things, even knowing the word crepuscular, I'd be like, that's, it probably means something else. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the joke. They're probably right about I this. mean, I wouldn't check it. I mean, to be clear, I would never check anything they said. But yeah, I'd buy it. I'd buy it for sure. Yeah. There's two specialties that could include any made up nonsense word in their notes, and I would just have oh. to believe them. And it's ophthalmology and dermatology. <laughs> I knew the other one had to be opto, of course. There is something actually once on a derm note. This, this actually was a much more interesting consult for them, like genuinely. But it was a patient who had um, bowel-associated dermatosis arthritis syndrome. I, I looked up what the acronym was again to make sure I got it right. But the acronym is BADASS, basically. I mean, only one S, but it's like BADASS. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, the, the team loved it. <laughs> we were a big fan of that diagnosis. Yes, this patient's very badass. <laughs> it's true. They are badass. It's just a badass. Okay, well, so to answer your question, so one good thing. Actually, I, for once, have a genuinely, I think, like good answer for this. So as I mentioned, I started my research block recently. Um, by the time this comes out, who knows if I'll still be on it based on our history. But it, it is today, April 9th, and I started the block on April 1st. And first day, I didn't really do much. But then the second day, I was like, you know, I have really not worked out in a while. Like, from a cardiovascular standpoint, I am, like, not in good shape. Like, you know, it's like when you, like, have to go up a couple flights of stairs to see a patient. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to wait for the elevator. That's dumb. And then you get to the patient's room, and you're kind of, like, a little out of breath. And you're like, this is, goddammit. So that is a scenario. And so I have now got on the treadmill seven days in a row. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, uh... Which I feel, like, pretty proud of. That's great. I, I thought yeah. it was gonna last like one day, so I'm like pretty impressed. Hey, with one day, one day is better than no days, That's right? True. That's the point. Uh, not to be one of those people, but it's good to do any amount of exercise. Yeah, I had a pretty good run. I like worked out every day while I was on vacation, but then oddly enough, I got back from vacation and took a week off. Wow, so, we we approach vacation yeah. very differently. <laughs> well, it was nice because I just had free time. So no, no, no. I, could, no. Like, I mean, it's I mean, it's the whole reason I'm doing it now, right? Because. Yeah, I can like randomly during the middle of the day occasionally go. Occasionally I'll do it at night. Like yesterday, I went work out at like eight or nine p.m. But the day before, I went to like at like two or three p.m. I just you know, yeah, I had a good, I had a moment. It seemed like a good time, and I went. There's also something to be said. I just like working out first thing in the morning. It's just first thing in the morning means needs to be like eight or nine. Right, not like five in the morning. Right, exactly. Sure. That makes well, a lot of sense. Well, I just I have neighbors, and as little as they have regard for me, I cannot in good conscience work out at five a.m. It's very crepuscular of you. It's actually not. It's actually like dawn. It's, it's, it's actually a- the opposite. opposite. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's the word? <laughs> Adjective related to dawn. Okay, keep 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 going. I'll I'll I'll, I'll investigate. Yeah, yeah, but it's good to get some exercise in there. It makes you feel better. It makes your brain work a little better, which is always nice. Do do you feel any different after like consistently working out for a little bit? Uh, I think so. I'm not sure exactly what, but I, I so I think there's two things, right? There's obviously there's sort of the physical thing, which hard to know at this point. It's been a week, but I feel like mentally I feel better about myself because I'm like, hey, you know, even if I don't have the most productive day, at least I did something today. So that again, like point to that was actually like genuinely a little hard to do. My overall goals for it are to kind of beyond just like getting in better shape, like to actually genuinely increase my like cardiovascular like, endurance and fitness. And um, specifically, the way I'm kind of doing this is I'll be mostly kind of doing a, a, a slight incline to walk at like three and a half miles per hour. And then I will basically do like a six mile, six mile per hour like run during it. And at this point, I can actually, it's actually already improved from when I first started like a week ago, but can do that for about like 13 or so minutes, 13, 14 minutes before I'm like, again, I need to like lower it back down. And I'll do another brief one later in the workout. But my goal is by the end of the month to be able to do it for like 20 minutes straight. No problem. And then eventually maybe just keep going with that. And that's like, it, like, that's like a cool idea to me. Like that means like I could, I mean, that, that's, that's basically running two miles, two miles continuously in like 20 minutes, which would be pretty legit. Yeah. I mean, not, not like good. super impressive, but like. Uh, the, the, the bar of super impressive is the enemy of all good things in life. It's a, it's a good point. That's actually very, it's right? a, 
the fact that you are running two miles in 20 minutes or two miles in a, a period of time is better than the no miles in no period of or true. In infinite amounts of time that you were doing before. It's a very good point. Yeah, so right, that, right. I think that's nice. Um, it feels like yeah. something where I can at least point to a thing that I am doing and trying to be consistent about. So we'll see if I stick with it. I'll give you two two things I learned or picked up from a fitness class. I have one of these apps that has like little fitness classes that you can do like 20 minute workouts or whatever. And both of the two trainers that I've been using, their classes that I've been using, they say, remember that you're not trying to be better than me and you're not trying to be better than anybody else in the class. You're just trying to be better than yourself before. That's it. That's the only person you need to beat, right? Um, and then the other thing that I took away from is one of them kept referring to his triceps as pythons. And I guess I just hate that more than anything. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> those, are, and, those are, those are two equally helpful points you made. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I guess, yeah, always try to improve yourself and, uh, to never refer to your triceps about as pythons. Right. Like I liked the rest of the class and I legitimately considered rating it one star to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Please this, never do that. Yeah, again. this guy needs to stop. He, I mean, he must be stopped, and it's honestly your 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 duty to society to stop him. So I think that's very reasonable. In all yeah, ways. yeah. I mean, I I do I need to resort to vigilante justice? Not yet, but maybe <laughs> it's on the table. So this is a very specific and stupid joke, but um, Indians, or I guess other brown people, so that, you know, not 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 only Indians, but people from the general Indian subcontinent will refer to like any other person's like parents or like basically person of a certain age of your parents but who's not in a professional setting as like auntie or uncle sure and um my sister and i i don't know when we started doing this but every time we hear the term vigilante we think of this woman named vigil auntie (laughs) (laughs) and i don't that's like nothing but it's i literally can't not think of that when people say the word Uh, glad we took this detour. <laughs> yeah, good old vigilante. Because I don't want to be that guy, but the last thing we were talking about is like hard work and sticking to something, which would have been a good transition into today's topic. But now we can't do that. <laughs> no, we can't. Not even we can't a little. Go, we can't vis- visit vigilante <laughs> and not and not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have to if you're if you're in vigilante's neighborhood and you don't visit her. I mean, you're gonna be hearing about that for years. Look, if you're leaving with only one cup of chai, that's like an efficient trip. You're probably staying for a meal, a cup of chai, you know, she's going to want to watch a movie, you know, it's it's a whole thing. It is. It is a whole thing. Good old vigilante. Anyway, but yeah, so yeah, to, to your point, there was actually a fantastic transition that I just completely blew through. But, you know, I, I will say overall, I do feel good about that. We'll see if it continues. One thing I have done, I've printed out a calendar for the month of April, and I am putting X's on the days, and I put it up in my fridge. And so when I walk past my fridge, I'm like, look at me. Look at me with this streak. It would have been very funny if you just stopped at, like, I printed out a calendar of April. <laughs> and then you're just like, you're like... Aren't you proud? I printed out a calendar. <laughs> I mean, actually, that in and of itself is very impressive. Because now I know the date, like most days, which is better than I can say for a lot of days. Yeah, I'm usually not oriented to time or space. I mean, genuinely true. It's happening. It has happened multiple times when I've asked the patient, you know, the, you know, the orientation questions, and they say the date, and then I'm like, uh, and I pull out my phone real quick and I check. The nice thing is, if I'm asking them after I've consented people for surgery that day, then I, in fact, do know the date because I have to. But that is actually often the number of times I will wish a friend happy birthday only once I've done my first surgical consent of the day is like crazy. This happens to me routinely because I won't know the date. And then I do my first surgical consent. I'm like, oh, crap. (laughs) It's a noob's birthday. I should wish him happy birthday. It's it's wild to me that you know your friend's birthdays. (laughs) I do not. I don't know that many friends' birthdays, but I know a few. I know, like, j- periods of time. Okay, So sure. I'm like, oh, I, I think this person's birthday is coming up. I should probably check what it is. It's one of those things, it's like an infinite to-do for me to, like, put people's birthdays into my calendar. It would be so easy, well, so I, but I, I just haven't done it. So I started doing that, and then, well, one, because there are several friends for whom I just know their birthday because they were friends, like... Oh, for the friends were a very long time, and it was like back sure. before. Like it's the same way. Like I know their home phone numbers because like back before we had cell phones. 
oh, these are like, these are grandfathered in. Friends. Yeah, 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 exactly. So then those people, I know their birthdays as well. And then I was like, well, it's actually really nice to know your friend's birthdays. And so then I like have actually made more of an effort to try to memorize friends' birthdays in the last like couple of years. I mean, you're a more conscientious person than I'm. Nah, I just, I mean, I not just really, feel like it, it's a lot of hard work, you know, oh, like you, I just, mean, you gotta like, you gotta stick to it if you want to know people's birthdays, you know, and I, I just don't know if I have that sort of, uh, I don't know, like uh, perseverance to stick to a task for hmm. that long of a period of time. If only there were a better term for this. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I, unfortunately, I don't think there is. And I don't think anybody's ever written a book on the topic hmm. about the importance of perseverance. So, All right. Well, it was a good podcast. Certainly enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, thank you guys for listening. Um, as always, our theme song is... <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so today's topic, this week's topic, is the book Grit by Angela Duxworth. This is a book, I'm actually not sure exactly when it came out, but it's been several years since it's been out, and was really kind of a big deal when it came out. It made a lot of these, you know, um, must-read book lists by various, you know, important figures. It made the rounds in various, like, kind of corporate offices, and it's a book that I think, unsurprisingly, also applies to medicine, and in particular, I think, to residency. And I think does dovetail with this general idea around wellness, which is that, sure, there are a lot of things we can do from a systematic perspective or a systemic perspective to affect wellness, but are there other things about the people in the system themselves that maybe lend, lend themselves to either being more or less well? And one idea is could grit, which is sort of made up of passion and perseverance by this book's thesis, um, could that be one of these factors. It's an interesting book, a relatively quick read. I, I listened to an audiobook and I believe it was like nine or 10 hours long. Really, really not bad. There's a lot to discuss about this. I will say for full disclosure, we both actually read this book a while ago, but we sort of reviewed sort of the salient points of this book more recently um, so as to discuss it. And obviously I can kind of discuss a lot more of what it goes into, but just off the bat, um, if you have any sort of thoughts about it. So Grit as a book, I think falls into a category of one of these types of books that attempts to divine the secret of success in people who are highly successful. Yes. Right? And in doing so, I think it hits on a very good point, but makes several key mistakes that can be kind of dangerous, when, especially if you look at them in the framework of wellness. Agreed. And, and so overarching, I think there are good, important lessons to take away from this. But I also think that there's some caveats that uh, if you look at the book through a certain lens, you could see how it could be very dangerous and potentially hurtful. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's really well stated. I think this is this sort of is this it's this interesting crossover between sort of pop psychology and like sociologic books and self-help books that this falls into. Um, which, I, which I think is a very good way of putting it, sort of the secret to success. And I think one of the biggest issues with a lot of these books, and I, I think fundamentally, it, this is the nature of any time you have a particular you know, thesis that you're trying to prove over the course of a book, is that I think it becomes a bit reductive and that you're trying to fit everything into your framework. And some things just don't actually naturally fit into it. So you have to actually fiddle with them quite a lot to make it fit into your overall point. And I do think occasionally that leads to conclusions that don't honestly... Not that they don't make sense, but that they, they seem to miss a lot. Yes, yes. It reminds me much like an essay that you might write in like high school or college where it's like, I've picked my thesis and I've picked these citations. And regardless of what these citations say, I'm going to cite them in a way that makes it seem like they're supporting my thesis. Oh, Malcolm Gladwell, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mystery solved. I, yeah, Anoop is a fake name, clearly. Oh, wow. I am Malcolm. <laughs> also, I gotta say, I was actually very much, um, I felt very uh, vindicated by this. So I've, as a, as a young lad, like middle school, high school, I was like, Malcolm Gladwell, great. I read several of his books, Blink, Tipping Point, Outliers, those things. And um, I was a fan. And then at some point, I developed the ability to like think critically about what I was reading. And I was like, hmm. Actually, a lot of this seems very reductive and like not that useful. And I was talking to somebody recently. Here are her exact job description. It was like within it was within psychology, but it was like I think it was about about like sort of like the economics of like decision making kind of. And she was trying to basically describe what she did and sort of mentioned Malcolm Gladwell as sort of a hook, as like a oh people know what this is, so like this will help you. And I, I was sort of like 
honestly, not a huge fan of him. I think he's like super overly reductive, et cetera. And she was like, oh my God, that's how we feel about him. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, okay, great. Like, you are a fucking expert and you support my opinion. Therefore, I'm right. <laughs> right, right. It's like Malcolm Gladwell is to psychology and economics as like Dr. Oz is to medicine. It's like everybody does know who he is, <laughs> but uh, damn. <laughs> right. No, yeah, it was uh, this is a huge, huge tangent, of course, and really just an opportunity for me to like, you know, grind my axe against Malcolm Gladwell. But the point is that I think I, I don't think this is false as many of the traps as some of his books do, because I, I think she is intellectually honest enough to realize that this does not apply to everything. But still, I think it overstretches a little bit. Right. So let's discuss, first of all, what is grit, right? What is the, the, this term that she defines? Uh, and it's essentially just a mixture of perseverance and passion. That is to say, sticking to one overarching goal for an extended period of time. And her thesis is this, this characteristic is the thing that people who are highly successful at any given thing all share is that they all picked a goal and stuck with it for an extended period of time. And that the main difference between gritty and not gritty people is the ability to both form these goals and stick with them. And the book has a lot of other kind of points around that. And I, I think some interesting ones I think are actually very much worth exploring, which are that people in general will say they want hardworking employees but they tend to write people who they view as naturally talented as better. And similarly, people prefer to attribute things to natural talent as opposed to hard work. And I think that is a very interesting point. I think it's something that I've fallen into very much, which is that I think it feels better to say, oh, well, this person is particularly remarkable because they have this natural talent. And that's not to say that natural talent doesn't exist, right? I mean, there is a natural bell curve with all forms of talent and people are going to fall in different parts of it. But the idea that you're never going to be particularly successful in an area unless you've put in a lot of hard work, I think it can be nice to ignore that um, because it sort of it sort of removes the obligation on you to do that work. Yes, yes. I often just talk about certain pathologies with the framework that they are mentally comforting, particularly with regards to bias, like any sort of systemic bias, racism, sexism, whatever it is. Those are all very mentally comforting because you essentially do not have to think about a portion of the population as a nuanced individual. Like if you're sexist or racist or whatever, you can just like write off groups of people and it's mentally comforting. I think this is another thing that is also mentally comforting is to attribute people's success to inborn traits just makes you feel better because then it's not your fault that you do not have the things that they have. However, it ultimately prevents you and society in general from achieving better things if you assume that everybody who is successful is that because of natural born traits. I mean, in a very dark tangent, it also leads to things like eugenics, which are pretty fucked, but like yeah. the long-term road of that is, is pretty far down the line. The, the more everyday version of it is whenever somebody says to you like, oh, well, you're just really, really smart. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, yes, but also, <laughs> yes, I'm a genius. But a lot of that comes from just like doing things for so long, like putting so much time into my education, right? And, and uh, similar, I think you and I are very similar in that we have fallen into the trap of maybe being more often naturally talented than we are hard workers, uh, which is a very, I, not to say that we don't work hard, because obviously we, we got to where we are. But I think both you and I at least perceive that we could be working harder and therefore be more successful. There's this thing within the book, and it's something that she's given to a lot of different people um, as part of her research called the grit test. And I think when we, when we originally read it, we had both taken it. It's basically, I think it's a series of like 10 questions, I want to say, that sort of look at different aspects of passion and perseverance. And you basically, I mean, it's totally um, self-administered and graded, right? So you, you basically are answering the way you feel about certain things. And then you grade it. And I think both of us did not score like especially highly on it. But I think that was in the, also in the context that you're judging yourself, right? So there's an intrinsic bias that if even if you by a larger, in a larger group might be considered gritty, if you feel like you could be grittier, you're not going to consider yourself gritty. So it's hard to say, but I, but I agree that there's certainly that I felt that I think, 
I think if you look at me from like a societal perspective, I think I would say I'm relatively gritty. I've certainly stuck with things that most people would not have stuck with. But when we've narrowed our focus further and further, as you do in medicine or any other specialized field, you naturally compare yourself to people around you. And I think that has led me to not feel the most gritty. Right, right. And to some extent, that is ideal because you do have to shift your frame. If you, there is no utility in comparing yourself to the average person if you are doing something that is, the phrase I was going to use is above average, but let's not even make it that. If you're just doing something that's different from the norm, there's no point in you defining yourself against normal people, right? It's like Olympic athletes can't be talking about running a 10 minute mile. That doesn't matter to them, right? Like, I mean, yeah, if they talk about that, it's like, oh yeah. And that's um, when I was like 90 years old. Yeah. <laughs> After my second heart attack, I can only <laughs> run. I'm in a mile. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the, the framework for them is very different. And for us, it is very much the same. I mean, in terms of education and, and the work that goes into residency, you push yourself so far out of the norm that at some point in time, it, it doesn't become overwhelmingly useful to define yourself against an average person. And so I think I think that is, is one particularly interesting point it makes. I think I think one that is actually definitely irrelevant um, to residency, to medical training, and I think you make an argument to wellness as well, that feeling like you're not necessarily achieving your potential or what you should be doing can be very difficult. So I think feeling that way doesn't always necessarily help you achieve it, right? Because if you, if you feel that way, it should theoretically motivate you, but if it's such a strong negative on your overall like mood and outlook, then it can actually be counterproductive. And I think somewhat along those lines is the way you approach your job in general also affects your ability to be effective and be gritty. And this talks about how the majority of people do not really like their jobs uh, and that people who feel their work is this, you know, a, a calling compared to just a job or a career tend to be grittier than those who do not feel that way. Uh, and they are also therefore more satisfied with their jobs and their lives. I think what is tricky about that is that it has it holds the idea of a certain job or work as static to an extent. Like, yes, medicine is my calling or urology is my calling. But I don't think it delves enough into the aspects of the day-to-day that can make that year more or less true. The things that lead to stuff like burnout and lack of wellness. And I, I think that's, once again, the nature of the book is trying to make broad points. But I do think when you ignore the minutiae, you kind of, you, you, do, you do miss the point a little. Yes, yes. And you ignore the emergent behaviors caused by accepting something as a certain sort of way of acting. So, for example, by accepting that medicine is a calling, when it fails to feel like a calling you might start to feel like maybe I should not do medicine, which is not the way you want to go about things because like we talked about on our match day episode, then you end up with a lot of people with a lot of training who do not want to do this thing anymore or can't do it, right? Because in this case, because they've burnt out, right? So burnout's a very dangerous thing. And on one hand, feeling very passionate and feeling like medicine is a calling can prevent burnout. But on the other hand, it can also lead to burnout. Right. Where, because medicine often fails to feel like a calling. I think the perfect case example of this outside of medicine is teaching. You know, there is no really good compensation for teaching. At least with medicine, at the end of the day, once you're an attending, you could say, I I hate every part of this, but I get a good salary, so I will keep doing it, right? Teaching is that level of work and effort without the good salary. (laughs) So there, there's nothing to keep you wanting to do it once you burn out. And a lot of people say in the world when confronted with that idea, it's like, well, if you don't want to be a teacher, don't be a teacher. But it's like, you're ignoring the fact that we as a society need good teachers. We need people to be doing And you're also job. ignoring the fact that at one point that person did want to be a teacher, right? Right. Like, like they weren't assigned by random chance. And yeah, I'm sure there are a fraction of people who like really weren't particularly interested in this sort of like they decided to do it kind of as a backup or what have you. I think the majority of people who get into teaching really do because they are passionate about it and something that they really like invigorates them. And the fact that you have so many who at some point are totally fed up and burnt out by it, 
I don't think it means that like, oh, well, there shouldn't have been a teacher at all. It maybe means that the, the, what you've created, the system you've created is the problem. Yes, yes. You've created a system where somebody who really wants to do this would still choose not to do this. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I think that is one of my issues with that discussion. I think it's an important one, backed up by in reality, backed up by data. If you view your work as a calling and you're passionate about it, it's easier to get up at you know five a.m. and make a lesson plan or do some additional reading in the case of medicine or, or or what have you. But when it stops living up to that promise and you put it on that pedestal as this calling, I think the fall is even greater and even harder. Right. Right. And it's part of going back to your original point, you're supporting a thesis when you're writing a book. And so you ignore certain things that do not support your thesis, which in this case, the thesis is that with regards to your success, you have an internal locus of control, right? So it is on you to be gritty and persevere. And so then when you don't succeed or when you can't succeed, it is then on you that you did not succeed right. and did not achieve your goal, right? Whereas in life, having having an internal locus of control is good. Uh, an external locus of control is often associated with pathology because you, you blame everything on everybody else and you don't say that, like, nothing bad happens to you because of things you did. It's because of other people. However, the reality of the world is that there is a bit of an external locus of control. Like, you can't control other people. You can't control what they do. You can control how you react to it, but you can't change the world around you all that much except through very great effort, right? So when you ignore that, let's say, medicine is occasionally a very, like, difficult career to have and that there's a lot of things that make medicine difficult that have nothing to do with actually taking care of patients... And you say, oh, you're not succeeding in medicine because you are not passionate enough and you're not persevering enough and not because you're buried under a mountain of paperwork and that's not what you signed up for and that's not what you care about. And you see patients for five minutes of a day and then spend the remainder of your 9, 10, 12 hours at the hospital in front of a computer. And then you tell the radiologist that they spend all their time in front of the computer. <laughs> like, it's not true. We both spend the same amount of time in front of the computer. <laughs> That's just me grinding my own axe. <laughs> all that is to say, it fails to acknowledge the differences between what you can control and what you cannot control. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think kind of along those lines, there are, there are a couple more things. Like I, I guess I'll, I'll finish off by talking about some things that I think were particularly valuable in this book and in part of this thesis. There are a couple more things that I did want to mention that I think I have an issue with. In this, and once again, I realize some of these are somewhat outside the scope, but I still think they're important. One is very much not outside the scope. I think it's just it's just a statement that's talking about how optimists are more likely to be gritty and they're less likely to suffer from things like anxiety and depression. And that I feel like is just kind of as a classic cause effect. Like, I mean, maybe if you're just biochemically less inclined to have depression, yeah, you're more likely to be optimistic because the world yeah, seems it, brighter when you don't have depression. <laughs> it's frequently and i'm sure you've met many of these people hypomanic people do very well in medicine because <laughs> it turns out like constantly being energetic and needing less sleep at a baseline it's a really useful trait yeah like it's not like that isn't I and mean, of course you're more likely to be gritty because everything fucking seems great <laughs> yeah it's just like me with coffee is more gritty than me without coffee. That really doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with the stimulants that I'm consuming. Right. Yeah. So whether endogenous or exogenous, I feel like you're somewhat, yeah, I, I feel like it somewhat misses the point there that um, if you have a system that's leading to more anxiety and depression, that's going to lead to fewer optimists and therefore less gritty people. It's not that they're not optimistic intrinsically and that's why they're not gritty. <laughs> Um, so I think that's kind of just an important point. And then another point that I think is not really directly addressed that much, it is a little bit, for sure. When discussing students who, uh, a lot of this talks about um, students. It's, I mean, the, the big focus of the book is looking at basically their people in training or people who are, or, or like, you know, like uh, younger students and kind of how they you know advance. And it's talking about how kids in particularly um, disadvantaged environments, um, you know, like your classic, like your inner city school, there are still amongst those kids really gritty kids like 95th percentile grit kids and they will still make it out of that environment i think there are two issues with that argument the first is that it shouldn't require 95th percentile grit 
in order to have a normal life or we can, can attach it to medicine, it shouldn't require that to be able to like survive within medicine. Like that's an unreasonable standard to have and is going to lead to a lot of people being burned out and not surviving within medicine. And I think that's sort of important, right? Like if you're 50th percentile grid, that's like pretty, I mean, that's like assuming your population is kind of the people who are within medicine, that's like a pretty gritty person at baseline. And I, I think if you're always kind of holding up the people who are really at the top of the line in these different characteristics, you're kind of creating an unreasonable standard for people just based on statistics. Exactly. And I mean, that that's just medicine 101. The bar is always excellence in medicine. So that's even outside of the context of this book, but this book supports the same mentality, which is that excellence, this 95th percentile behavior should be the behavior with which we're all acting. But if it was the behavior with which we were all acting, it would no longer be 95th percentile. Like you have to acknowledge the other 95 percentiles and say that we have to build a whole society that also involves these other 95 people. Right, right. Exactly. That to me was like one of those things which was like, I understand the point of a book is to look at paragons and be like, look at this, look at this fucking paragon. But it, it felt a little bit like it was kind of missing just sort of a societal point. And I think similarly, I don't think there's enough of a discussion about how background shapes your reality and like the environment which you grew up in, um, the society in which you live in. And I think this is your classic, and this comes up obviously in medicine when looking at historically underrepresented groups within medicine, be it women, be it racial minorities, um, be people of you know non-heterosexual orientation, groups that historically have had discrimination within medicine and also within society at large and expecting that when they're at that baseline like that they're going to have the wherewithal and like the energy like the energy left in their tank to be like oh why aren't you just like equivalently super gritty when every day-to-day interaction is going to further take things away from them i think also totally misses like a really important point exactly i I think just to to expand your metaphor it grit or perseverance is a finite resource that you spend on a day-to-day basis and these people you know uh, be they any disenfranchised group let's say have to spend a certain amount of their grit and energy on just like existing and getting through the day and so then when they get to work and they're compared to their not to use a oversimplification, but like they're cisgendered white males who come from an economically advantaged background. And it's like, why aren't you as good as this guy? And it's like, you don't even know what I had to do to get out of bed. <laughs> like, the, the game is totally different. Exactly. And so I think, I think those discussions are also, I mean, I, I think they're like touched on in the book, but I don't think there's enough of a discussion. And I understand that it's really kind of, that, that is fundamentally outside the scope of, of this thesis, which I get. But it did feel like a bit of an oversight in reading it. Sure, sure. I don't disagree with that. It does ignore sort of privilege and, and the effect that that has on, on your grit in general. And I think it's an important oversight, particularly when it comes to medicine, because medicine also likes to overlook that stuff. And the overlooking of that stuff takes a very appreciable and noticeable toll on your wellness. Because then at the end of all of that, when you're compared to your co-residents and you're deemed lacking because you have other things in your life that you need to deal with, there is going to be emotional damage associated with that because you perceive your career as a calling. So now you think like, oh, well, I'm 50th percentile in medicine, which is apparently a failing. And now I'm failing my patience and I'm failing at my calling. And so now you've taken what is just a sort of economic or social disparity and turned it into a measurable decrease in your own wellness. Yeah. Right. Because you feel as though you're failing at your calling. And so I I think while I think it's a worthwhile read for those within medicine or those outside of it, I think it has some interesting points to make. I think those were several things that gave me pause both in reading it initially and, 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 and recently when, when, when reviewing it. I do think there were a couple things in it that I think were very valuable to take away. I think things that we've discussed before, but I think are particularly important. One thing that's talked about is um, parenting strategies. And there's this idea of sort of a quadrant parenting strategies, um, basically either being like demanding versus permissive, and then being like supportive versus like negligent, basically. I think the wording might be slightly different, but m- more or less um, the idea 
And fundamentally, the best place to be is demanding but supportive, which is that you sort of hold your children to a high standard, but you support them in their endeavors. And when they do fail, which will happen to all people, you are there for them. You're not like casting them out as a failure. And this, of course, also applies to people who are not parents, but serve that sort of abstract role, you know, teachers, coaches, attendings, perhaps. Perhaps. Or senior residents. Sure. The importance of playing that role, right? You do want to hold people to a high standard to be demanding so that you help them reach their potential. When I think about the attendings who I've found a particular kinship with, it is people who are, without exception, fall into that category of demanding but supportive. I have some attendings who I'm like very chill with who are supportive, but maybe not that demanding, which is fine. But when I think about the people who I really feel like have pushed me to be better, but I still like really admire them and want to like talk to them and get go to them for advice, etc. It's people who are constantly falling into that category. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And I'm not sure exactly if there's anything that can be specifically done to foster that other than just like making a note of that, right? Making a note that it is important to sort of push people to the edge of their potential while still not, you know, holding it against them if they don't always reach it. Is I guess my broad thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree that it is difficult to balance demanding and supportive because by its very nature to be demanding is to acknowledge that you that somebody has failed in some way shape or form right it's it's to say like i need you to match this level right obviously there's always a uh, starting point right when you first start residency you can always say like this is the level i expect you to reach but every point thereafter to make a demand of someone is to say that they are in some way not reaching that demand right so there is going to always be a perceived failure and that's kind of the nature of education is you will perceive that you have failed at various points in time when in fact you have not and you're actually just right along the normal curve of things right it's inborn it kind of has to be there but i think where a lot of people lack is they lack on the supportiveness so they are demanding and demanding and demanding and once you hit their bar they will say nothing to you yes if you're at or above their bar, you get zero. And then if you're below their bar, you get negative. There's no like positive other side of it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to be around. It is. Cause I, I, I think, and I think that's something we've talked about before on the podcast. I think it's something I've talked about with you offline and also just with friends, um, both with, within and without medicine. There are few things that are as like crushing as putting in like a ton of effort to accomplish something. And then, like, no one acknowledges what you did. Like, I don't do things for praise, but, like, man, sometimes when you just, like, don't even get, like, that bare minimum of, like, oh, like, good job today. Like, ah, like, day after day after day. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talk about a way to, like, burn someone out. That is, like, mm, like, chapter one. <laughs> right, right. And to some extent, there is acknowledging when your effort is not valued, of course. That is to say, like, don't put effort into things that no one is going to care about or notice or will affect clinical care at all. I, I think a lot of interns struggle with this because they put a lot of effort into their notes and they spend hours upon hours doing their notes and no one notices or reads them and therefore they get no praise on them. And so it doesn't matter. Right. And that that's one like very that is a thing that I think is kind of a universal lesson of intern year that people just eventually learn like, okay, this is the line I need to hit with my notes and any effort past that point is really not going to help me or anybody else. Right. And, and I think it's a very common trait in medicine to put extra effort sometimes into things that don't really matter. So there's always a line there, but it is also nice when people just acknowledge the effort that you are putting into things. I think that's an important caveat to me, right? And I think this is a, this is a classic gripe about the millennial generation, which, by the way, includes people who are like in their 40s, but like separate point. Anybody who uses the term millennial in a negative way probably does not know how old millennials yes. actually are. They are frequently talking to about people who are kids right now, which are not millennials. Not millennials. Totally separate point. But there's this gripe that, that I've heard, I'm sure you know, you've heard as well, which is this whole like participation trophy generation. Like we all have participation trophies for everything. And... I think important to make the distinction, like, it's not that I need to be, like, praised for all the things that I'm doing on, like, a day-to-day. -day. Like, there are a lot of things, like, it's, it's any job. Like, you have to just achieve a certain standard of, like, doing your job because it's a, it's a fucking job. Like, just do your work. But I, I think 
for me, my perspective is very much like it costs you literally nothing to praise someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying just give it out for no reason. Like someone's doing a garbage job. Like I'm not being like, oh, great way, way, way to go today. But right. people are doing great work around you all the time if you like take a half second to actually look for it. And so therefore you can like use your uh, non-limited resource of praise. Like it's very much a renewable resource. Like it doesn't run out. Yes. <laughs> like giving someone praise doesn't make it not real anymore. Yeah, it's, uh... yeah. Pete Holmes, a comedian, has a very good bit about this, which is he essentially says, like, we're just walking around with the keys to everybody else's joy in our pocket and we just choose not to use them. Like 90 percent of the time we're like, oh, we could compliment people. We could make them feel good about each other, about themselves. And we just don't do it. Yeah, that's that's common in human society, no matter what. But particularly when you exist in a power structure like medicine, it's very valuable to be able to compliment people to to acknowledge the effort that they're putting into things and it costs nothing there's no problem and let me say the amount of difference it makes like i'm sure this happened to you you're having a rough week you're like this is just a just garbage city this is the worst and then yeah like an attending or someone else just like randomly compliments you on something you did or like says you did a good job or like oh yeah like like seriously like You've like improved a lot from like a month ago when you like started this rotation or whatever. And uh, wow, suddenly I have, all, I have all this energy. I'm like ready to run through a brick wall. Like, you know, it, it's crazy. It's actually crazy how much of an impact it has. So just saying could be it. I mean, and also I'll say for me as well, I think I try to keep in mind when working with people who are, you know, subordinates, whether that's, you know, more junior residents or medical students, etc. One thing I've done before is when I've heard praise about somebody else, I have told them <laughs> that the other person praised them. Because that also happens. People will just be like, oh, man, like X is doing a great job. I'm just like, won't tell X. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, Wait, I'm not I'm them. not X. Tell X. <laughs> um, so occasionally I'll just tell X. I'm like, oh, by the way, like this attending said you're doing an awesome job. Like I figured I'd just pass it along. They're like, oh, thanks. Like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. It is a nice feeling to just know that people think that you're doing a good job. Yeah. Or the other, it's this isn't even a compliment, but just acknowledging when things are busy is always oh nice. yeah oh that one's great yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 so low effort to be like oh busy night and you're like yeah it was a busy it's, night it, it's like it's like the equivalent of when someone's like oh you got a haircut I'm like thank you <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> like you haven't said whether it's a kid haircut whether it looks like garbage but you just acknowledge that it occurred and that is enough for me <laughs> right right. It's just someone hears me and acknowledges my plight. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Also would like to quickly hit on one of the things that I think is a really good point in this book, which is a practice that she actually talks about. She talks about practice and particularly deliberate practice. That is to say, practicing and learning in a very deliberate way where you're constantly like challenging yourself to go a little bit further with purpose, right? And I think in medicine, we, we stand to learn a lot from deliberate practice because a lot of what we do is not deliberate practice. A lot of our education is more passive, right? I'll describe how, uh, how the author kind of sets out deliberate practice. It's pretty straightforward, but essentially first step is just you set a stretch goal. And this can be about anything, but something that usually has some sort of performance metric with it. So you you acknowledge your baseline and then set a stretch goal. Then you just work on that undivided attention effort into that goal to reaching your stretch goal. While that you're doing that, you seek a lot of feedback and, and get feedback and see how you're doing it, if you're doing it correctly. And then you just do that over and over again, right? Whatever your task is, whatever it might be, you just repeat it. And then finally... When you get to wherever your goal is, you set a new goal and you do it, right? And all of these goals are sub-goals of that, like, sort of one overarching goal. In the case of medicine, it's pretty obvious. It's just, like, being a a good doctor, being good at your job, being good at your specialty, right? And so what you're setting your stretch goal to can be a lot of different things. I mean, the best way that I think about it in, in radiology and interventional radiology is when I want to learn. In radiology, you can often struggle with 
picking a topic to learn because you could just study anything, right? It's all of the body. It's pretty much all of the pathology, except dermatology, as we've discussed. But you could just learn anything at any given time. And most things have imaging findings and there's a lot to learn, right? So the way I integrate deliberate practice is just like, okay, I'm going to pick one complicated study and today and tomorrow and whatever day, I'm just doing a lot of those. I still may read other things, but for example, I was on my body rotation recently and I was just like, I'm just reading MRIs of the prostate and I'm going to do a ton of MRIs of the prostate until I get good and comfortable at doing MRIs of the prostate. And radiology is lucky because feedback's built in, right? I send my reports to my attendings. I immediately get feedback. Re repetitions built in. I just do more of them. And then picking a new goal built in. Just pick a different study and do it's that. It's also very nice. Right? There are like an unlimited number of prostates. There's so many. <laughs> yes, yes. Turns out, at a certain age, everybody just gets an MRI for prostate. <laughs> it just, like, kind of happens. It's like, oh, you're having trouble peeing? MRI of the prostate. Your PSA is a little elevated? MRI of the prostate. <laughs> God, I hope, I, I hope everyone who, who's having trouble peeing isn't getting an MRI of the prostate. No, no. We, we do not have that much time on our scanners to, to afford that. But uh, it's... Yeah, no, for sure. All that is to say... It, I think radiology has sort of that perfect framework for deliberate practice that a lot of medicine does not afford you because the things that you are learning are inherently spaced by their occurrence, right? So it's just like if you're in training and you never see something, you may just never really learn about that, right? So how do you integrate deliberate practice into a more clinical-based specialty? I, I don't know, Samir, what, what's your experience with deliberate practice in urology? Yeah, I mean, I think with any procedural specialty, I think it's kind of the obvious, which is, your, as you mentioned, overarching goal is I want to be a good urologist, I want to be a good surgeon, etc. And what that is composed of is... Um, Obviously, there's like the medical aspect, like just the not like urologic knowledge. I think that's, that's what that fits in any specialty. Obviously, every specialty has like knowledge of your specialty. Um, but then there's actually like the specific like physical skills, right? Like being able to do a particular procedure. And then you break that into its components, right? So that's understanding the anatomy, being able to like tie knots fluidly and, you know, like sew things. Um, <laughs> I really sound confident right now. <laughs> It's the ability to uh, do urology on people, you know, when they, like they come and then you, it's like I look at the schedule and it says, oh, we're doing urology from this. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Yeah, I didn't make the schedule. That's what it says. Yeah. Right. So, you know, those types of things, there are obviously many modalities within it. So you have like your endoscopic stuff. And so you might have, let's say, you know, your ureteroscopy and you do it and there's some aspect of it that feels kind of awkward to you. And so maybe you focus on that a little more during your next time doing it. And so I think that is part of it. And then I think additionally, there's the aspect through things like knot tying or if you're doing like robotic um, or robotic surgery, for example, practicing prior to the OR with sort of simulation is also a useful task. Whether all that stuff directly translates, it's always a little hard to know, but there's some evidence certainly that it like helps. Um, and so I think doing those all those various things can be useful as part of that deliberate practice. But inevitably, what that means, right, is you need to just spend a while living in that place of I am not good in the hope that eventually you will be better. And I think that's hard. And I think another thing that sort of comes up in the book is removing self-judgment and the pressure to be perfect. And I think it's a lot easier said than done. Um, but I think it's something I'm trying to improve on. Uh, lightly decrease the amount of self-loathing I have uh, when I'm like in the OR, for example, and I like fumble a bit and I'm like, God, you're fucking garbage person who can never operate and never, you know, whatever. That 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 whole, uh, that negative self-talk, that's difficult. You know, I think that is not super uncommon within medicine. I think the nature of the, well, I think one of the more common pathologies within medicine, but it's, but it's a tough one to get out of. Um, and I, I think the point the book makes, I think, is a good point is that a lot of it is counterproductive. I think some aspect of it, the drive to be better, is on a spectrum with this. But I think it's easy when doing things like deliberate practice to fall into that, which is really discouraging and, and takes away from your ability to stick with practice and, and to be gritty. Right, right. In reality, there should be no need to hate yourself for not being perfect already, right? Because the whole point is you're in training, right? But I think you and I will both acknowledge that self-loathing can be used as a motivational tactic to a certain extent. Again, much like many things, there hits a point where you hate yourself so much that you just don't do anything. <laughs> you're like, well, I suck and I'm always going to suck, so I'm done, right? 
that's the comical version of it but i think that's a very real wall that a lot of people hit is that they just feel like oh, i'm not gonna get any better because i'm so bad at everything it goes back to a metaphor that i've used before is that self-loathing is just it's not a clean energy source right it's like yeah it'll work but it, it'll it'll damage you each time you use it and you'll get into these habitually hating on yourself for not being perfect to the point where you may not even acknowledge when you are actually doing something good and and then you start to ignore the you know the very few compliments that we get you'll ignore those because you'll be so convinced of your own lack of worth that you'll just keep hating on yourself essentially so so i i just sent you something it's from this um comic or, or blog called zen pencils where this guy um sort of draws comics based around these quotes and this is one that i that i saw several years ago and it stuck with me although once again i can't say i always sort of follow its ethos um, and we'll link it in the show notes but i think is i think it's very valuable and relevant to this discussion um it's a quote from ira glass talking about basically being a beginner and it's it's, it's talking about creative work basic idea is that like the reason people get into creative work is because they really enjoyed what they saw in creative work. They have good taste, basically, and they want to create something like that. But when you start out, your taste and what you like is like way higher than what you have the ability to produce. So it's very frustrating because you're like, well, I want to make something awesome, but everything I make is garbage because I'm comparing it to this awesome thing. You're comparing your practice, your work to everyone else's end result, basically. And the idea is that you kind of have to just push through it. You have to be aware that you have to acknowledge that it won't be good for a while. But know that like to trust the process that eventually, if you stick with it, it will turn into something worthwhile, valuable, etc. And that is something within medicine that I struggle with and a lot of people do, which is that inevitably a lot of what you're comparing yourself to is to your attendings, right? Um, because other people you're like in the case of like an operation, like you're literally with them in the OR, right? So it's you and an attending. And what's tricky about that, obviously you want to you want them to be around because they're the people who can teach you, but you're also comparing yourself to someone who has done this like orders of magnitude more times than you have. And that learning curve is so steep that it's almost as if they're like in a different field than you in some cases because of how drastically different your level of knowledge and practice is. And I think it is hard to keep that in mind. And it's something I try to remind myself of. Like at one point, they were also here as well. But sometimes it's very hard to really believe that. And I, I think that is part of the self-judgment as well, the self-loathing. Because you're like, why can't I be that? I should be that. But in reality, you shouldn't be yet. And so I think that has helped me a little bit with that. But I think it's still very difficult. So Samir, I mean, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about like things we liked about the book, things we don't like about the book. I guess to end it all off, would you recommend that people read this in residency? Criticisms given. Sure, like. sure. I think as long as you're reading it with a critical eye, yes, I think so. I will say personally, when I read these books that I'll broadly include in the category of like aspirational books, there's a short-term effect of like, okay, I can be better. I should be better. I will like use this to motivate me. And inevitably that fades because it's like a random brief spurt of motivation and you really require discipline to continue it. But setting that part aside, I think even if there are flaws in it, creating some framework for how to improve yourself or improve the way you approach practice and improve the way you try to improve is valuable. But I think the caveat is just to go in with the critical eye, right? There are going to be things that either we saw but didn't mention or things we missed entirely, both due to you know our perspective and our biases. And so there may be other issues with it. There may be things that we may be did not totally characterize accurately, but I still think it's a worthwhile read, even with its issues. How do you feel about it? I would agree. I think you should read this book, but roll your eyes every once in a while, and then you'll be okay. It's as long as you come to it with the energy of like, okay, some of this is probably bullshit, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, moreover, I think I'll, I'll use a point from the book to say why I think the book is important. It's a phrase you actually use, which is just improving the way that you improve, right? That is like anything that changes the way in which you learn and practice and better yourself pays off in dividends because you're essentially, you're increasing your rate of change as a person. So anything that can make that better for you is is a pretty big change. It can, it can have a lot of long-term consequences. It's something they talk about in the book is like, talent is good but effort pays off twice as much because as you put in more effort you build up more skill and then your skill increases 
your ability and the quality of your work. So it pays off twice over time. Like people who put in more effort improve their skills and then they use their effort to use their skills to do more, right? So if this book can add to that for you in any sort of meaningful way, it becomes worth it. And I think a lot of the ways in which the book talks about practice and perseverance are valuable enough that they could make a a meaningful change. Yeah, I think I buy that. So this will be kind of the first in, I think, a semi-series. It won't be like our other series where we do the episodes back-to-back, but a topic we'll revisit. Samir and I are going to try and touch on other self-helpy, self-improvement style books and see, you know, how they relate to residency. If you guys would like to uh, get in the comments, as they say, or rather the emails, (laughs) and uh, send us recommendations of books that you've found meaningful or... Conversely, books that you've found to be total and utter bullshit, we'll be happy to look into them. And as always, um, we haven't been mentioning on every episode, but if you have one good thing, let us know. Always nice to get those uh, cheerier emails. You can email us at mandatorywellnesssession at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at mwspodcast. We have a website linked on our social media. Uh, and we are on iTunes, Spotify, amongst many other podcasting apps. And of course, our theme song is Nothing Slash Anything by Westy Reflector. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Nothing.